Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm sitting in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, brother, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. I'm glad that you have chosen to take time to join Pastor Murphy and I on the program tonight, and we look forward to your interaction. The program is designed for you to ask your question, whether it's on the topic tonight or on another topic. And before we get to tonight's topic... We are going to discuss a question from last week, because last week a caller called in and asked Pastor about Jeremiah 45 and God's message to Baruch. Pastor, you said that you would like to study it out and answer it more in depth this week, and so to set the stage, let me read the five verses of Jeremiah chapter 45, and then let you expound on it. Jeremiah 45 says, the word... That Jeremiah the prophet spake unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the, the mouth of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jer- Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto thee, O Baruch, thou didst say, Woe is me now, for the Lord hath added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sign, and I find no rest. Verse 4, Thus shalt thou say unto him, The Lord saith thus, Behold, that which I have built I will break down, and that which I have planted I will pluck up, even this whole land. And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. For behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord. But thy life will I give unto thee for a prey in all places whither thou goest. Pastor, can you give us an overview of Jeremiah 45, and then what does it mean to us today? Well, basically, um, I'm glad I took some time to do some research on the subject itself. And I want to thank the gentleman, um, I think his name is Louis C., uh, for submitting the the question. Uh, But basically, this chapter has to do with God's message to Burak, who was the secretary or the emanuses of Jeremiah. He's the one that had recorded uh, Jeremiah's prophecies. Remember, the king had um, destroyed uh, um, Jeremiah's prophecies when he learned that the prophecy was against his kingdom. And then uh, Burak was the one that was called to 
uh, once again write these prophecies down. But uh, apparently Barak seemed to be a very ambitious person, and uh, it seemed as though he wanted some kind of advancement. Uh, he was an educated man. His brother was a high official in under King Zedekiah. You find that in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 59. And his grandfather had been a ruler of Jerusalem during the Josiah's reign. You find that in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 12, and Second Chronicles 34, verse 8. Uh, and so, even though he was the one that was stood by Jeremiah, was associated with Je- Jeremiah, uh, he had some ambitious plans, and he was looking for some kind of advancement. That's why this text is given specifically to speak to, to Barak. Um, in the first two verses, uh, references made to the fact that who he is, and uh, the fact that he was the one that wrote down the prophecies of Jeremiah. Uh, so that first verse has to do with that. In, in verse number two, uh, the Lord gives a specific message to Jeremiah, uh, to Barak, and this is a very personal message because clearly um, his ambitions was getting in his way of his performance. In verse number three, uh, he had been complaining. He said, Our Lord is me, for the Lord have added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groanings and have found no rest. Uh, because of his close association with Jeremiah, who was preaching an unpopular message to the king, uh, he himself came under attack. And um, he was faced uh, the same problems Jeremiah would face, beleaguered by people who were opposing him because of his close association with Jeremiah. Therefore, he got weary, like all of us get weary when we're going through a time of trial and testing. So he complains uh, about his weariness and his tiredness and exhaustion. And the fact that being associated with Jeremiah had caused such pain and anguish uh, to him. And then in verse number four, uh, the Lord tells him that a crisis is coming. Now you learn later in verse number five, he tells him, don't seek great things. But the Lord is telling uh, telling him that the overthrow of Judah is coming. And he's going to tear down and uproot Judah. And he is going to be part of this crisis as well. He's not going to escape this crisis. So the Lord tells him that uh, trial is coming, further trials are coming. And then in verse number five, uh, to forestall his pursuit of ambition, the Lord said, but but thou are you seeking great things for yourself. Uh, here is ambition beginning to get the ascendancy in Barak. After all, associated with a man like Jeremiah, uh, clearly, uh, he thought that maybe he should have been gained some kind of important position being associated with God's prophet. And because of his grandfather and his father had held uh, positions under Zedekiah and under Josiah, uh, he had this ambitious trait within him. So the Lord is saying to him that um, you're not going to achieve your ambition. Disaster is coming. I'm going to bring a great crisis in Judah. I'll root, I'll destroy. You're going to be part of that crisis. But then the Lord... Uh, out of concern and compassion, uh, promises him that when the disaster come, uh, his life would be spared. And that's why he said, I will give your life as a booty or a bounty or reward in all the places where you may go. So the Lord decides to protect Barak, and um, he's not going to achieve his ambition. He's not going to die in the crisis. But at the same time, uh, the Lord is going to preserve him because of the work he's done in connection with Jeremiah. So basically, it's just a specific prophecy to Barak 
uh, acknowledging his comp- uh, his contribution towards Jeremiah's prophecies, uh, understanding the frustrations and the, and the uh, problems that he faced being associated with Jeremiah, and getting tired and weary, the Lord intervenes and speaks to him. And one of his main problems is his ambition, and God forestalls that ambition by telling him, don't seek great things. Uh, because this crisis is coming, you're not going to escape this crisis. But nonetheless, in my providence, I will preserve you, and your life will be preserved. Thank you for that explanation, Pastor. Again, this is an interactive program, and if you have a question for Pastor Murphy, you can send it to us via WhatsApp or text message to one 782 or if you'd like to call and be put live on the air, one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Now tonight we're going to be discussing a topic that is becoming more and more controversial and somewhat confused as time goes on. And we're discussing tolerance. Should we be tolerant? What does it even mean to be tolerant? And what does the Bible say about tolerance? Pastor... I think it's only pertinent that we start out by defining what in the world is tolerance, and is there one definition of tolerance? Well, I think uh, it's important for us to understand that this is one of the key buzzwords that are going around today, and uh, one of the pet uh, terms that are used, and the entire Western culture has now adopted this as one of the main planks of the democracy, that everybody got to be tolerant. The problem uh, with this matter is how you define tolerance or toleration. Um, Generally speaking, when we talked about tolerance, it it meant for us that we were able to accommodate different beliefs and different opinions. Uh, It didn't mean that we necessarily had to agree with those opinions or beliefs, but tolerance had to do with the idea that living in democracy, people ought to be able to express themselves, um, ought to be able to do things that are different, uh, practically and uh, even whole intellectually. Uh, but tolerance has to do with the idea of putting up with uh, people who differ with us and uh, being able to accommodate them uh, without necessarily embracing those beliefs or those practices. That was what was generally the concept about tolerance. Uh, today that has all changed and it really means different today. It means uh, that when we talk about tolerance, it means that all views are are acceptable and to be tolerant is to accept the views of other people. So when you differ with people now, you're now labeled as intolerant. Previously, uh, we accepted the fact that the reality is that we could differ on opinions and we could hold something that we didn't have to agree with a person. But the modern way of looking at it now is to be tolerant, is to accept people and even to affirm people. Uh, and if you don't do that, you are now viewed as, in, as intolerant. I've been the, the definition, the Bible, I mean, a, a dictionary definition is a, a fair, objective, and uh, permissive attitude towards those whose opinions, practices, race, religion, uh, nationality, etc., differ from our own. It, it's actually freedom from bigotry and uh, bigotry and just accommodating others. Go ahead. I've been reading a book, Pastor, called The Intolerance of Tolerance, and it's written by D.A. Carson. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, him. Yeah, Dr. Carson. I'm very familiar with him. Uh, very good book. I am only about halfway through it, but he, at the beginning of the book, draws out that difference of how tolerance is changing. And he talks about how this new view of tolerance, politically correct view of tolerance, 
is not just to acknowledge that someone has a different view than you, but it's to acknowledge that your view, even though it may say the exact opposite, is just as true as my tr- view, because it's what you believe, yeah. which doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, but, you know, truth in its intrinsic nature is intolerant. If something is true, the very opposite is false. So, but the, 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 the new uh, way of defining the term um, and I suspect it's supposed to, in a multicultural society, and where we're trained uh, in the Western world now, you've got multiculturalism with all of these different ideas uh, being put into a pool. The idea is how how do we live together uh, and at the same time accommodate each other. The problem that uh, has been created, however, is that because governments have a social agenda, and you, you, I mean, we can't discuss these things without talking about the moral state of society, the idea of same-sex marriage, the idea of homosexuality being normal and uh, to be accepted. So what they're trying to do is to put pressure, and that's why the redefinition has come in, so that before things could exist that differed, and we accepted the fact that you can hold a different view, I can hold a different view, but I will tolerate you, you will tolerate me because we live in a democracy. Now they've gone beyond that, where uh, for you to be tolerant or perceive as tolerant today means that you must accept my lifestyle, accept what I'm doing, and uh, if I differ, I'm now a bigot, and that's the problem. So this redefinition is creating a problem within the democracy because it is no longer... This kind of tolerance is no longer tolerant towards those people who differ. Basically, that's what's happening. (laughs) I came across a study that was done by the Pew Research Group. It says that 70% of Americans affiliated with a religion or denomination said that they agree that many religions can lead to eternal life. Among evangelical Christians surveyed, 57% of them agreed that many religions can lead to eternal life. Among Catholics, 79% agreed with that statement. Isn't that a wonderful thing that Christians are becoming so tolerant of other people's views, Pastor? Listen, when we are going to compromise a position where there is absolute truth, uh, when we are silent on the matter or we compromise on, on truth, this is not something that we should embrace. This is something that is contrary to Scripture. The whole idea is that no longer do people want to believe in something that is universally transcendent and applicable to everybody. They don't want anything that's exclusive. They don't want an exclusive Christ, an exclusive salvation, an exclusive heaven, an exclusive religion. The whole idea that we must learn to accommodate and accept every 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 um, religion, every movement, as on the same standard. That might seem um, noble. That uh, I can believe that there are other ways to heaven, or other the other ways than Jesus. But again, when you come back to Scripture, uh, that is clearly contrary to the biblical teaching. That truth is always exclusive. Uh, as long as something is truth, non-truth is false. So we must not accommodate this new concept of tolerance. Uh, We must see it for what it is, and we must understand that it is part of a deceptive policy to pressurize people and sometimes label people. And that's the problem. For example, take take, uh, Islam. 
I I'm a, I'm I don't accept Islam as a, a true religion. When I say a true religion, that it, I believe that Islam and all religions are, are, besides Christianity is false. But I believe that Islam has a right to function as a religion within a democracy. So I, even though I disagree with Islamic teaching, Islam says that God has no son. There was no resurrection. There was no, there's no death of Christ on the cross. Uh, so they differ with Christianity. But uh, I can say that I'm against Islam without being Islamophobic. In other words, you label me now. Uh, and to try to pressure me to, to kind of renege and to put them on par with Christianity, but I can't do that. Same thing with homosexuals. I'm against homosexuality, I'm against lesbianism, I'm against any form of immorality. But uh, do I believe that those people should be killed or murdered or slaughtered? Or, or, or No, I do not believe in, in that. I believe within a democracy, uh, that should not be the result. Uh, in other words, they should not be put in prison, whatever it is, basically. But that doesn't mean that I um, agree with the lifestyle. Same thing with same-sex marriage. I, uh, same-sex marriage is contrary to Scripture. will always be wrong. But again, in, in a democracy, I am, if I say that I, I'm against that, uh, and somebody has gone and, and uh, become uh, with a same-sex arrangement, that doesn't mean I hate the person. It just means that I cannot support their lifestyle. And that's the problem we're having today, that we, we, we're using a term that used to be a virtue, tolerance. Even within the church, people differ. I tolerate people because we're different personalities, come from different backgrounds. Uh, but if you want me to accept everything that you do uh, to be tolerant, this is where we must draw the line and understand that we're going beyond. We're trying to stretch tolerance to become an umbrella term that embraces too much. And we got to understand that this is a, a modern uh, trap uh, that we've got to be very careful about as believers. It's interesting to me that in the spiritual realm, so many people are willing to say, oh, yes, all religions lead to heaven or lead to God. But if you were talking to someone here in Antigua and they said, which road should I take to get to Devil's Bridge? Yeah. And someone said, oh, take the road to Old Road. Well, that doesn't make sense at all. That's the opposite direction. That's not headed to Devil's Bridge. And you would correct them when it comes to a roadmap. But when it comes to spiritual things, suddenly we're not allowed to correct people. Yeah. Uh, there are two areas that people um, don't want to be uh, corrected. That has to do with religion and morality. Those are the two main areas that you, you can disagree with a person about a color of a car. Uh, you can disagree with a person's personality and say I tolerate him. But in actual fact, when it comes to religion and morality, uh, people don't want you to have any kind of universal standard that says that this is right or this is wrong. And it, it's, it's total nonsensical. Everybody would know that. Uh, if you take a, a plane or you take a car and you're driving and, and uh, you're going to uh, Devil's Bridge, you're given the wrong direction. You'll never end up at Devil's Bridge. But people don't apply that same principle to religion, and, and that's one of the big problems that we have today. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The voice that you've been hearing teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy. He's the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. He is here every Tuesday evening on the program to answer your questions. Do you have a question for him this evening? Maybe a thought, maybe a suggested future topic for discussion. We would love to hear it. You can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is one 268 
462-7420. You can also send your question via WhatsApp or text to one 7821454. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 750. Pastor, you define tolerance, but why is it even important to us to be for us to be discussing this topic? Well, as I pointed out um, earlier when we started, that um, however you look at culture, modern culture, and understand Western culture, this is a subject that's really eaten away at not only uh, the Western world, but eaten away at Christianity. Uh, Christians are being um, bullied, and if they differ uh, according to the social agenda of our times, or the religious uh, ecumenism or unity, whatever it is, um, they are being labeled as bigots or they're being labeled as intolerant or uh, ha- uh, hate mongers. Uh, so we've got to understand what is happening. It's this redefinition of the term that is creating the crisis. And if we're going to deal with it, we need to understand that they have redefined the term. If it was used normally of being tolerant, that not that we accept what people are doing, but we are able to live within the democracy with divergent views and divergent opinions, that would not be the problem. But by redefining it in such a way that uh, tolerance is no longer no no longer leaves any room for any objective moral judgments, uh, that's the crisis that we've created. And when no absolute transcendent truth or standard of right and wrong exists, society and the norms of society are just reduced to matters of preferences. And that's where we are today. That's why it's so important. It's, you know, it, truth is truth. Uh, it's not just that you prefer to accept something as true. It's either uh, absolute true or not true, but that is not tolerated today. And this is part of the what is called the postmodernism, where um, anything goes, basically, and uh, there's no absolutes, and relativism is the norm of our times. But wasn't Jesus tolerant? I mean, he ate in the house of sinners, in the house of tax collectors. One of his disciples was a tax collector. Well, some people take Jesus and, and try to turn, make him into an image that he's not. It's just like people are there trying to form an image of their God. They're creating a God in their minds. When you look at, at Christ and you look at his life, it is true that he was tolerant when he was dealing with people who were responsive or people who were searching for truth. But Christ was totally important, uh, intolerant to, to take religious hypocrisy. If you read Matthew chapter 23, some of the most biting, uh, burning words that you will ever find in, in Matthew chapter 23 are directed towards religious leaders who are practicing hypocrisy, who are more concerned about the outward approval than about the inward state in which they live. And so you'll find that in Matthew chapter 23, he calls them again and again vipers. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them whitened sepulchers. Uh, that's, not, that's not tolerance. I mean, that language is, is uh, in some way very uh, scathing and very, very, very um, uh, pejorative at times. But again, it's very, very strong language, and he was not tolerant. Uh, in, if you look at Revelation chapter twenty, uh, chapter two, chapter two, verse twenty, for example, you'll find that Jesus was not tolerant towards even the church tolerating uh, falsehood and teaching in the scriptures. Could you read that, please? Yeah, Revelation two twenty says, "Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess." to teach and to, to 
to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Well, here, the classic example, here's a glorified Christ, by the way, that is giving the message to, seven, uh, to the churches. Uh, Revelations 2 and 3, the seven churches, he gives a message. But notice there that he is, he is condemning them for their suffering or tolerating uh, a false teacher, a lady who's a false teacher within the church, misleading the church and causing them to commit spiritual fornication. That doesn't sound like a tolerant Christ. He's actually condemning the church and refuting the church and rebuking the church for being so tolerant of uh, accommodating this false teacher uh, within uh, the church. The idea that is often portrayed that Jesus Christ was a pacifist and he accepted everybody, that's not true. You, you read the Gospels very, very carefully and you'll find that when people responded to him, he responded in kind and he was very thoughtful and very considerate, but he was very, very intolerant in other cases. The other thing is he's very intolerant of sin. You recall that when the woman in adultery was caught and um, he said, um, which of these condemn you? And he said, I don't condemn you. And then he said, but what he thought that go down and do what? Sin no, no more. more. See? Yeah. So he is compassionate, but he was not tolerant of her sin. He's not saying to her, okay, I, I, um, I pardon you, I forgive you. Go back and live a life of prostitution or go back into your adultery. That is totally intolerant towards that kind of uh, matter. So to claim that Jesus Christ was tolerant is to miss the whole matter. Uh, clearly, when you look at his life, and if you read, for example, the, the Sermon on the Mount, um, he's intolerant towards hypocrisy when it comes to prayer. People praying in places and high places and sounding and, and uh, uh, blowing the trumpet when they give tithes and offerings. Read that passage very carefully. That's not a tolerant Christ. It's one that's completely intolerant to hypocrisy and falsehood. So it's a false uh, claim that Christ was a pacifist and tolerant, accepted and accommodated, and he was some kind of a chameleon that adjusted to every situation. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello, good night. Good night, sir. Pastor Murphy? Yes, sir. What is your impression of contemporary gospel songs? in churches nowadays. What is your impression and your philosophy on it? Well, my, my view of it, that some of it is good, some of it is rotten. It all has to do with, um, for example, I think that the message of the song should go with the music. Sometimes the music gets ahead of the message, and you can't even understand what is being said. It's too loud, it's, it's too noisy. Um, I think sometimes they need to be balanced between the melody and the rhythm and the harmony. Uh, sometimes you've got too much rhythm. And uh, I'm not a musician, so I'm speaking here speculatively, but I am not. But I do feel that I know good music because music that elevates my mind and, and gets my thoughts to think of God. Other kinds of music is so sensual, sensual, sometimes as though the, the, the musician is whispering, as though she's quoting Christ with some kind of a love song. I, I, I think that is repulsive. But I, I, I really feel that um, I don't think that all contemporary music is bad, but I do know a lot of it is, 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 is rotten, and a lot of it is 
quite frankly, um, more a form of entertainment than glorifying God. When we go to church and we play music or we, pre we preach sermons, the whole object is to draw people's attention, not to the individual, but to draw attention to God. That's what praise is. That's what glorifying God is about. But when the song draws attention to myself and I'm speaking in such, you ever heard a person like, though they, they love the microphone as though they're whispering in the microphone, you can almost hear the gasp and uh, stuff like that. I, I think that is totally sensual and I think that is improper but I do not condemn all kinds of um, contemporary music I think they're good contemporary songs they're bad ones and uh, I really think that the church the modern church is more a form of entertainment in my judgment than it is glorifying God and bringing praise to him uh, I was thinking Pastor Murphy about Psalm 150 yes sir uh, when it says, um, you could praise God in the well-tuned cymbals and the harp and, mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't, that was referring to joyful, upbeat music. Yeah, I'm not against that. I think any instrument, any instrument can be used and uh, glorify God. The question is how it is played. You ever been into a church yet and they see the drummer? And he is almost competing with the guitarist, as though he wants to show that he is uh, more adept at beating the drums. And so you've got this massive competition. It's not as though it's it, it's not focused on, on glorifying God. I've seen that again and again and again. Yes, 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 yes. But I do feel, sir, that any musical instrument can be used. I think this steel pan, for example, I think that can be used adequately. If you're doing it for the glory of God and it becomes across that, you don't not drawing attention to yourself. You're really doing your utmost best. I've heard uh, uh, Handel's Messiah played on the steel panel already, and it was amazing to hear it. So yeah. I'm not against these things, basically, but I think it's how it is done, how it is played, and I think we need to balance. The problem with me, though, I must say, is that because I didn't study music, I regret that. Desperately, I really regret that, because there is such a thing as harmony, melody, and rhythm, and the good music is when you can balance those. Sometimes you've got too much rhythm, and when you know you've got too much rhythm, when your your feet take over and your head is lost, so you're more concerned about dancing and, and moving. That's the rhythm that you, stuff like that. Uh, when it got harmony is when the music is is blending together and there's no dissonance, and your mind is just elevated. But again, this is outside my domain. And uh, but I, I I do feel that uh, Psalm 150 you're talking about I do think in the case that we can praise God on any every instrument, but we just need to be careful how we do it. I'm just a little bit concerned about too much entertainment in the church. To be honest with you. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for that call. We appreciate it. Keep listening to that's truth. Keep encouraging others to listen. When was the last time you encouraged someone to tune into the program and to ask their questions? Maybe you had a discussion with a coworker today or this week about a particular question and you answered it as well as you could from Scripture. But uh, let me encourage you to point them to the program That's Truth. Point them to the Bible, of course, but point them to the program and encourage them to ask Pastor Murphy what the Bible says about a particular topic or maybe why the Bible doesn't say something. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1268-782-1454. I'll give that to you again for WhatsApp or text 1268-782-1454. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, 
The phone number is 1-268-462-7420. And the phone, number, the phone line is available and open, waiting for your phone call. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 802. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor Murphy, anything else you want to add to why it's important that we discuss tolerance? Yeah, let me let me just add uh, to the fact that Jesus was a um, people said he's a very tolerant person. Um, look, um, even a divided heart, Christ was intolerant towards a divided heart. He said, "You cannot serve God and serve Mammon as well." Does that sound like a person who is willing to accommodate everybody in every situation? And then he made it very, very clear that there were two choices, there were two kingdoms, there were two masters, there were two rewards, there were two ways. Uh, he made it very clear that there's a broad, easy, popular way, and there's a way that is narrow and difficult and unpopular. One leads to destruction and one leads to life. He gave options, and he wasn't saying that the broad way is going to lead to the same destiny as the, the narrow way. Again, he's totally intolerant towards that. And then he was also intolerant towards uh, self-indulgence. He said, if any man come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. I mean, it's very, very, very clear. He's not going to tolerate somebody pursuing him and coming after him, but yet want to live a self-indulgent life and pursue his own selfish ambition. Uh, so, however you look at Scripture, uh, we got to understand that there is a biblical tolerance, but it's also something that's unscripturally uh, intolerant. So we got to not, we must not confuse the terms and, and what the Bible means. And one other thing, God has always been intolerant towards uh, sin and iniquity. In Isaiah chapter one verse sixteen, He said, "Wash you and make you clean. Put away, um, put away your evil from among you." And um, and uh, from from, your, from my from before my eyes in Corinthians chapter fifteen verse thirty four, Paul says, "Awake to righteousness, and sin not." And then Isaiah chapter fifty five verse seven said, "Let the wicked man forsake his ways, in righteous man his thoughts." So when you look at Christ, you look at uh, at that God, uh, they're tolerant in the sense that they're patient and long suffering, and compassionate in dealing with the sinner but very intolerant towards the conduct and the behavior and that which is contrary to God's will and God's mind as we express in Scripture. Pastor, we have another caller in relation to music and tolerance. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Um, good, good evening, brother. How are you doing? Good, sir. Good, no problem. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a question that I would like to ask. Sure. Um... um regards to religions and which religions say that this is the way of that they all agree that we all have the way of we all have the way to God or to heaven or whatever the case may be. Uh, Jesus Christ said specifically that I am the way, the truth and the life, that no man can come unto the Father except through me. Right? Yes. And I know that a lot of people today believe that believe that Christianity is the way to God all the way to eternal life. Uh-huh. Now, my question to you, to you guys, um, um, I don't know, if you can, if you, if you can write it, because I have a, another question to ask. Yeah. Um, that, that, why, um, can we, uh, sort of tune it so that it doesn't appear as if that Christianity is the way to God? 
I am not too sure if I am reading you correctly. What I would say to you without, um, I'm speaking without clarity here. Oh. Look, Christianity is an exclusive religion. By the way, not just Christianity. Islam is exclusive. Judaism. Judaism is exclusive. Hinduism is exclusive. Every single religion is somehow exclusive. All of them are claiming that Islam believes that that's the only way to Allah is through uh, Muhammad. Uh, Christianity teaches that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. The question boils down to which religion is, is true. And that, that's where the, the contest comes in. As far as I am concerned, um, I am totally convinced that the Bible is God's word. I'm totally convinced that no other religion answers the questions that need to be answered. For example, Islam cannot explain uh, the sinfulness of human nature. Islam believes that man is born good. The Bible teaches that man is born with a sinful nature because man is fallen. Right? Um, but the point is that everything boils down for the Christian about what is what did Christ teach? Because if we believe that Christ was God's son sent down to planet Earth to bring redemption to mankind, uh, and that he is not just man, but he is the God-man. He's both God and man at the same time. Whatever he says, therefore, is final. If he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. But by the way, he's not the only one that said that. Peter said there's no other name under heaven given among wing where we must be saved. Paul said, there's one meter between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That has been the position of Christianity, except in modern times of apostasy, where we're trying to accommodate everybody to be popular and to be liked and to be loved and not to be labeled. Uh, so we have compromised the message, and because of that, we're in a state of Christianity that's in limbo now that uh, even the young people no longer have any respect for the Christian faith because we've compromised so much. They've looked at us and said, you know what, you know, you know, what's the difference between you and the others? So we have surrendered and compromised, and consequently we're reaping the whirlwind, and uh, it's been very detrimental to the church. Okay, okay. What's but, the other uh, question, sir? What, what, what I should have said is that religion is not the way to, to, to God. Correct. Religion, yes, that's, that's what I'm wondering. I appreciate you saying that. All right. Um, I was listening to a, a morning devotion um, probably uh, four Tuesdays ago, four Tuesday mornings ago. Sure. Uh, we were playing a song, um, Let Us Break Bread Together on, on, my, on, on My Knees. That's a song that I loved growing up as a child. Um, I think it was, a, it was a group out of Trinidad that, 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 that penned that, um, that made that song. I don't and, know the song, sir, but I'm uh, listening. Um, okay, so after maybe last year, right, I was reading through um, Ezekiel chapter 8, and it said that, um, and he brought me into the inner court of the, of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, and they worshipped this, uh, worship this son towards the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Yeah. Is it a light thing, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, that they commit the abomination which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence, and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put a branch in their nose. Now the song says, Let us break bread together on our knees. And when I fall on my knees, with my face to the rising sun, O Lord, have mercy on me. I think that we, we, we don't really pay attention to these songs, right? Yeah. 
and we don't pay attention to the author of the songs them because them I mean the songs they they have they have some good songs. Yes. But when you check out the lyrics them to the songs them, um it says something that's different. Right? Yeah. So because they're promoting the worship of the sun itself. Yeah. And not the worship, the, the sun in the ear, right? And not the worship of Jesus Christ the Son. Yeah. You know, I, I would make a comment there too. I think that, uh, you know, if you read the, uh, study the writing of other great hymns, you'll find there's always some kind of a story behind it, that some mm-hmm. event, some something that's really personal. Today, most songs are written for the sake of money. It's all monetary. It's, it's all that. In other words, it, it, the whole idea is to get the, the, the CD or get the song out so that I can make my millions, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Be, because of that, and we're not worried so much about the lyrics as it's songs, if it, as it rhymes. We're not looking at the doctrine of what is in there. Mm-hmm. That's the poor state in which we've fallen into. We've made everything mercenary. Everything is commercial. And uh, it, it's in the church. It's... It's in the pulpit, it's in the preaching, it's in the music, it's in everything. We, You know, I tell our people in our church that, you know, we all pray for revival. You want revival, I want revival. But I always say to them, listen, the reason why we're not having revival is because if we could see what God actually sees is happening in the church, we'll understand why there's no revival. The mm-hmm. church needs to repent. The mm-hmm. church needs to be broken there's not going to be any revival until we come back to the point of brokenness and repentance. And we're in a sad state as a church, generally speaking. And the problem with us is that we are blinded to who we are because we seem to be prosperous. We've got bigger churches. We've got choirs. We've got all kinds of instruments. Mm-hmm. We've got, But we're not broken. And until we become broken, we're not going to see revival because there's a lot going on in the church that God sees and He understands and He can't bless this kind of atrocious Christianity that we're living, which we think is normal, but which is in fact offensive to heaven. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I agree with you that we don't, we don't look at the lyrics and we're not paying attention to those kinds. It's how it songs, it's, it's the rhythm, the rhyme. Um, sir, we've got to be get far more serious and get back to biblical truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I really hope that you would pray with, with me that we would have some revival, but we need to be broken first. We need The church needs repentance. If you read... Uh, Revelations 2 and 3, where the Lord's final message is to seven churches. Read them again, and you see it again. The, fr- the message to the, all of those churches is repent, repent, yeah. repent, yeah. repent. So we, t- we tell the sinner to repent, but the church needs to repent as well. Mm-hmm. And that's our dilemma, that we are comfortable in our condition, and we haven't un- have the burden of repentance, and we need to get back to that matter before we can experience revival. All right, so is it a matter of uh, where, where we've just become... Harden, um, especially uh, when it comes to um, certain particular worship songs. When 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 they, 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 the 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 words ask us to bow down and worship Him, uh-huh. is it a case where that we are so stiff in our ways that even even or we or we don't connect ourselves with these worship songs? I I think to some to some extent you, know, you take you know, the passage you read there Ezekiel. I would guarantee you that very few. Christians are reading uh, the Old Testament and reading passages of that nature. It's interesting that you would connect the two with a modern song. The average Christian is not a Bible reader. He's just not reading the Bible. He's not praying either. He's coming to church. He's having a good time. But in his own personal life, there is no connection between him and God. It's just... We've got Christianity instead of Christianity. That's the problem we're having. And, and the church needs to understand that. Look, I wish I could do a survey 
where we can uh, ask some basic questions to all the churches in Antigua. Mm-hmm. Basic question like, do, do you pray? How much time do you pray? Do you read your Bible? How much time do you read your Bible? Do you witness? How much time do you witness? Um, are you watching pornography? How many times a week do you watch pornography? You'll be stunned if we were to do a survey and people were to be given, give us, give honest answers mm-hmm. without putting the names on it. I think you'd be shocked at the current state of the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, because you are a person certainly in the Word, you can draw the connection, but the average person is not going to see the connection between that song, whether it's consistent with Scripture or not, because he's not reading the Bible, so he doesn't see the connection. As long as it sounds good and it's mm-hmm. popular, he goes after it. But it takes a person like yourself who's reading the Bible to analyze the song and say, is this doctrinally correct? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for calling, sir. I really appreciate that. God bless you. Pastor, do you think that it's safe to say that in modern Christianity, there's been too much of an emphasis put on music in the the church service as opposed to in-depth teaching of God's Word and reading of God's Word? I think that is generally true. If you were to visit most churches, uh, and by the way, when I'm on vacation, I think our church knows this, I generally would visit other churches to see what's going on. It is something we can learn, we can implement. I've been to churches where they sing the same song for almost an hour to 30 minutes. One song, same same um, chorus, over and over and over and over again. And they spend almost an hour to hour and a half singing songs, and then the guy gets us and preach a 20-minute message or 15-minute message. That is the norm in churches. Now, I don't know why anybody would pay a pastor to preach for 15 minutes when you're out there working eight hours a day, and uh, he just comes up with a 15-minute uh, sermonette, and the the other part of the program is just packed with other people doing other things. What's the point of having a pastor who's like that? I can't figure that one out today. Uh, but I do think that that's the big problem. Here's another thing, Brother Nathan. It's significant that everybody had the gift of singing, but very few people have the other 19 gifts. So everybody is, wants is, to, huh? is singing even a gift listed in the Bible? It's not though. listed. It's not listed. But that's the point. I'm saying that is very facetiously yeah. because I am saying, I how is it that we've got everybody who has this gift of singing? Hey, we want to sing especially. We want to do something, but we don't have anybody with the gift of health, the gift of administration, the gift of evangelism. Yeah. These other 19 gifts that are listed when you do a composite um, study of the, of the gifts, nobody seems to be wanted to say, "But this is my gift. I want to be used." That always bothers me. Everybody has the gift of singing. That's very succinctly stated. Uh, Pastor, we have a question that's come in via uh, from Antigua, Bath Lodge, Antigua. And the question is, how can a person know that Jesus accepts them as his child when they give their life to him? Well, this has to do with assurance, okay? And this has to do with eternal security. Uh if you read Paul's writing, especially chapter 5 of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul gives you, uh, in that passage, seven, several reasons how you can know that you are eternally secure. So if you read Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find that Paul gives a lot of reasons that are given there. The other thing I would say to a person is that uh, one of the clearest ways that you can know that you are generally authentically saved is to change life. You have to be a new person in Christ, a new, a new creature. That's what Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Uh, the other thing I would say to you is that you have a hunger and a thirst for God. 
Uh, Christ talks about that. If, uh, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. And then the other, the other uh, factor uh, that's important has to do with the struggle that goes on within you after you become a Christian. You'll find that generally speaking, before you become a Christian, you probably could commit more sins and you would enjoy that sin. Uh, the moment you become a Christian, if you commit that sin that once brought great pleasure to yourself, you find it's a great battle goes on in your conscience that uh, a voice within you virtually says to you, this is wrong, you should not be doing this. Um, as a Christian, uh, you're supposed to be a changed person. That's the tran- transformative nature in Christ, which is called the new nature that's put within you. And of course, you've got the indwelling Holy Spirit that is there to witness with your spirit that you belong to the Lord. I would think those are several things I've just given you there that should be uh, should help you to know if you're really, really saved. The other thing is that I would caution you about uh, a lot of people are depending on their prayer to save them. The fact that they said a prayer, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me. A lot of people depend upon that. It's not your prayer that saves you. It's your faith and trust in Christ's finished work on the cross. And I, I hope you understand that. Uh, we, we pray and ask for forgiveness. We pray and ask for salvation. But it's not the prayer itself that brings you redemption. It is what you put in your faith and trust in. And you've got to be very, very careful because the idea that there's some kind of a, um, a formula that you just repeat and there's a magic to it that the moment you say it like a, a magic wand, automatically you become a believer. Make sure that you put in your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. On the basis of your faith in the finished work of Christ, God declares you a son and God declares you righteous. You're listening to That's Truth. The voice that you're hearing is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua, from the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Tonight on the program, we are discussing tolerance. What is tolerance? Why is it important that we discuss it? And was Jesus tolerant? And if so, what was he tolerant about? Pastor, in this book by Dr. Carson, there's a couple of examples that he gives that really kind of shocked me. Uh, he was sharing that this whole issue of tolerance is not just in the Western Hemisphere, but also, uh, or not just in North America, but also in England. In some schools, the story of the three little pigs is now banned as Muslim children might be offended by the stories about unclean animals. <laughs> Look, this is the part, the problem that we're having within the Western culture. The Western civilization was actually born out of Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Christian uh, principles. Uh, most West, Western democracies were, were Christian. Uh, if you want to use Christian in, in name or in culture, uh, by uh, now having migration and bringing other groups into the into into democracies, we now try got these divergent groups, and we're trying to please everybody. Um, I, I don't see any reason for changing the story, to be very honest with you. It's just a child's story, uh, whether the Muslims get offended or not, uh, because it's a pig. But again, this is what happens when you're trying to accommodate everybody and to accommodate in the, in terms of accepting everybody. If we had the idea of accommodating where we accepted the differences and we must learn to be tolerant, that would not be a problem. But the moment you've ch- we define the term, to be tolerant now is to accept and endorse and affirm, then you have the problem. And I think that you're going to see that happen again and again and again. Um, the other thing is that we've got to be careful that we don't destroy history. Uh, 
there's some things about our history that is good, some things that are bad. Because there are bad things that happen in history, it doesn't mean that we destroy everything that of the past. We need to remember the past. You remember in Israel, they always had monuments. They always had some kind of a memorial that we built to remember that. I think this is what is happening in America now as well. They're trying to destroy the, 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 the past history when it comes to slavery. So even Jefferson, uh, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, there's even talk about now removing his name and removing his statue. Now, he's a, a, a substantial part of American history, um, and I think that memorial should remain, even if, though he was a slaveholder. There's no just cause for destroying history because of that. And I think it's a memorial to remind people of the change and the transformation that's taken place in, in, in America. But you're going to find that throughout the Western world, that a lot of things that were the norm or were accepted in the Western world in order to accommodate other groups who have now joined the civilization and become part of the multicultural um, culture, that now we're going to have to to change to, to accommodate. Some of it is going to be good, some of it is going to be bad. I, I, I just The problem with Western democracy is that we don't have any standard any longer. We can't say that we hold the Christian principles any longer and we hold to the Ten Commandments. And so we're in a moral dilemma. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question quickly, please. Hi, good night to the program. Hi, good evening, sir. Uh, Pastor Murphy, good night. I would like to ask a question, please. Yes, sir. Can you explain to me, like, the rapture? Uh-huh. Um, when will it take place? The Christian will enjoy to the rapture, or will it take off me before that? And that we cannot possibly... Well, uh, there are different views on the rapture. There are some people who are um, pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture. Uh, it all depends on your stance on it. As far as I am concerned, I think the biblical uh, teaching on the subject that is most in harmony with Scripture is the pre-tribulation rapture. And um, I believe that there is there's coming a period of time, the Bible calls it the Great Tribulation Period, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, when God is going to begin to deal with the nation of Israel again, uh, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, the reason why I'm saying that is this. Uh, the Christian hope is that we look for Christ to return. That's the Christian hope. The question is, when is he going to return? Yeah. And uh, uh, the, um, Paul tells us that God has not appointed the believer to wrath. The tribulation period is a time of wrath. The Bible says there has never been, nor will there ever be a time like this before. So because we are not appointed to wrath, I believe that the church is going to be raptured before God pours out his wrath, which is a seven-year period called the tribulation period. So I believe in pre-tribulation, where the believers will be raptured before uh, God begins to pour his wrath. Now, there's a reason for that as well. When God removes the church, if you read Thessalonians, it said that he that hindereth will no longer uh, hinder, but he'll be taken out of the way. And when he's taken out of the way, the man of sin will reveal himself. I believe that when the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit that indwells the believer, the Holy Spirit goes with the believer. So the restraining power that kept the man of sin from uh, displaying himself would now be removed. And now he's able to take control of planet Earth because that restraining power of the Holy Spirit is removed. Uh, so I believe that the rapture will occur before the tribulation period. And here's another thing. When the church is now raptured, according to Paul in Corinthians, in um, Romans chapter 11, God will now regraft Israel back into his program. God has broken off Israel and grafted the church, the Gentiles, into his plan. 
But Paul warns us not to boast because we are now the ones that are the instruments and the agency that God is using. Paul tells us a time is coming when God will once again regraph Israel into his plan and then all Israel shall be saved. So God is now working through the church. That's the agent God is working through. He's mm. not finished with Israel. He has a role for Israel to fulfill. But after the church is taken out now, Israel takes that, is now regrafted into God's plan. And that in itself also becomes a basis why I believe that the rapture will occur before the tribulation period. One of the truths that is important. If you check um, Revelations 1, 2, 3, you'll find that the church is mentioned in the first three chapters. The church is never mentioned again from chapter 4 down to chapter 19, which has to do, uh, which has to do with the tribulation period. The only other time the church is mentioned in the book of Revelation is at the end of chapter 21, where it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and the church says, come. So it's then that the church is begging people to come to the Messiah before this time of wrath uh, is poured out. So there's no mention of the church between chapter 4 and chapter 19, which is the tribulation period. It's only mentioned, and then it's significant that after chapter 3, John is caught up into heaven, and he sees the, uh, the scroll with the seals, that in itself, I think, is symbolic of the rapture that will appear, appear as well after chapters, uh, after the church is raptured. So that's the reason why I believe that it's a pre-tribulation rapture, not a mid- nor post-tribulation rapture. So we will escape the wrath of come because God has not appointed us to wrath. God is the hope of the church. It's just like Enoch, by the way. I think he's a good example. Just before the flood came, Enoch was translated. And he's a type of the church that we will be translated. The Jews are like Noah going through the ark where God is now going to uphold his wrath, but he's going to protect the, the Jewish nation uh, during that period of time. So Enoch is a type of the church raptured or translated. Then God's wrath comes, and during that period, God is dealing with the Jewish nation. I think those are, that's an analogy, I think, that is appropriate. Okay. Thank you very much. I hope that helps you, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one more question. Sure. Uh, about uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh-huh. The Bible tells you, Esau have, have I hate and Jacob have I love. Yes. And when Jacob and Esau cry and there was no repentance. Yeah. Is the repentance of going to heaven or repentance about what he said in his birthmark about for Esau? Hmm? That well, one... Well, that's in Romans chapter 9, and Paul is talking about God and his sovereignty. God has chosen uh, certain persons for a particular purpose and function. In the case of Esau and Jacob, it is clear that God had chosen Jacob uh, for the purpose of perpetuating the Messianic line. The Messiah would come through uh, Jacob. But again, if you read the story of Esau, you find that God also made promises to Esau in connection with uh, his ancestors, etc. So this is more a matter, when it says uh, God loved Jacob and God hated um, Esau, it, I would take that to interpret that God in his sovereignty had chosen Jacob to fulfill his purpose in terms of the Messianic line. But that does not exclude uh, Esau having a room for uh, forgiveness or his ancestors having a room for forgiveness and pardon. In mm-hmm. the case of Esau, um, he made some very carnal decisions, as you would know, and uh, he was a man of the flesh. Yeah. Uh, he sold his birthright 
for a pottage of, of soup, basically. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, he didn't seem to... The thing about Jacob, Esau always seemed to be a much finer character than Jacob. Jacob seemed to be a rogue. But the thing about Jacob is that there, he always seemed to have insight into something. He's always pursuing something more excellent, something that Esau, on the other hand, doesn't seem to value true value. He, 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 Jacob wants the birthright. Jacob wants the second blessing. Esau is, takes a very flippant attitude towards it. He doesn't seem to value um, spiritual things. That's the difference between the two characters. One is a very shady character who's always cheating to get what he wants. But yeah. he has the idea. He wants he wants the right thing, but he's going about it the wrong way. The other guy has got the right thing, but he's he's so frivolous, he doesn't understand and appreciate what he's got. And I think when you look at the two different characters, I think you can see why God uh, perhaps chose uh, Jacob, Jacob because he had he had insight into into value. Esau had value, but he was too trifle. You know, he trifled with it, and he never really appreciated fully what he had gotten. But it doesn't mean that uh, making that statement means that uh, Esau's ancestors and Esau was excluded from grace. Uh, it just means that as far as God's plan and God's purpose. Uh, in terms of preserving the messianic line, that God has distinctly chosen um, uh, Jacob to be the one that would carry on that line. Okay, then. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that call. We appreciate it, and keep listening to the program. Keep calling in with your question. Keep sending your questions in via WhatsApp and text. Pastor, during that phone call, we got a WhatsApp question from a listener in the Washington, D.C. area. Good evening, Pastor Murphy and Brother Nathan. Should a pastor run for political office and still maintain his position as pastor? My view on that is that pastors should still do politics. And what I mean by that is I, I think lay people in the church uh, should perform that role. A pastor is called by God to preach the word, to take care of the flock. And I think it's a great disservice to the people that he's called to minister to, to get involved in political activity. His job is to concentrate on preaching the Word, studying the Word, praying for the people, visiting the people, uh, teaching, um, counseling. I can't see how any man could do a proper job of pastoring a church and still have time for political office. I think if he wants political office, he should vacate the pulpit, give it to somebody else, but he should not have both, and I think it's doing a great injustice to the church to do that. Um, the other thing is that when a pastor becomes a politician, he identifies with a political party, and most political parties are perceived as corruption. Uh, but again, I would highly recommend that Christian lay people in the church really get involved in political activity. We can't leave this world for heathens to run. And I do think there's a place for Christian uh, politicians. You might serve one term, but you can be influential within that one term. But I think to just leave uh, the running of government to, to, to infidels and unbelievers and without having some kind of Christian influence, I think that's detrimental to any country. But a pastor should stay out of politics, concentrate on the Word, and give himself fully to the work of God. A quote that just came to mind is, uh, I was talking with a brother in Christ just the other evening, and he said, all it takes for... For evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. I don't remember for sure who said Burke, that. Quote. Uh, the, the guy Burke, I forgot his first name, uh, that made made that statement. I'm familiar with it. Getting back to tolerance, Pastor, uh, in his book, Dr. Carson or D.A. Carson says, 
that in 2005, a bank in Manchester, England, asked a Christian organization to close its accounts because its views were incompatible with the position of the bank. Do you see that happening in our lifetime here throughout the Western Hemisphere? Where's that again? That was in Manchester, England. Yeah, yeah. not listen. I that was we 15, are headed, 14 years ago. Yeah, we're headed to a real major crisis in the Caribbean. Uh, I think as the Western powers uh, try to force their uh, social agenda on these small countries which don't have resources that are dependent on grants, dependent on soft loans, um, I I think that we're going to find ourselves in in tremendous trouble morally. And I believe that uh, our governments and our leaders, I don't think they have the political will to, to take a stand morally. You hear politicians tell you they can't legislate morality. That's not true. Every decision a politician makes basically has some moral ramification. For example, when you legislate salaries, it's a moral element to that. You're saying that you're being unjust to the worker. Uh, when you legislate uh, anything to do with stealing or whatever it is, you are making a moral decision. So whatever decision a politician makes, uh, when you send up fuel prices or you lower fuel prices, it's a moral decision. You're saying it's, it's inequity we're trying to, to, um, to share the wealth or to spread the wealth or we're trying to reduce it. So, But the point I'm making here is that I can see that in the future, tremendous pressure is coming upon Christians. Uh, churches are going to lose their tax-exempt status because they do not toe the line, the social line. For example, churches stand up against homosexuality and lesbianism, same-sex marriage, and I don't know. I believe that what is going to come, you're going to have uh, uh, pedophilia, it's going to be coming, and bestiality is going to come. When you oppose what the government endorses and approves, I think they're going to come down very hard on Christians. And I can see banks, I can see uh, schools, I can see the, I can, for example, see the Ministry of Education uh, using its, its its power and its clout to force um, independent and private schools to fall in line with their agenda. I am in, in contact with a, a person in, this, in Barbados who is, uh, knows what's happening in connection with the educational system. I understand the UWI is preparing a curriculum going from K-4 right through that is going to be, have to do with family life that's going to be teaching from a very early age, four years old, that mommy and daddy is no longer mommy and daddy, that mommy and mommy, uh, a mommy can be a daddy and daddy can be a mommy. The total moral confusion that's going to come then. I can only speak for Grace Christian Academy. I can't speak for other uh, uh, schools here in Antigua. But that will not happen in our school. It will never happen. If we are forced to close down, so be it. But the point is we will never kowtow to a moral agenda that is contrary to Scripture, we will stick by Scripture even though it might cost us dearly. But at least in this part of the world, uh, a, a school will know to take a stand and not give in to government pressure on an agenda that is totally contrary to biblical morality. You were saying that uh, each piece of legislation that is passed that there's a moral aspect to it. So are you saying that when marijuana is legalized for recreational use, that there's a, a moral aspect? That's a moral choice because, look, I don't know how any politician can legalize marijuana for recreational use. I don't know that. I think a person who does that has got no conscience. It's either that they have not seen what the product of marijuana does. Look, the chances of a person having psychosis, uh, I forgot the, the, I could give you the statistics another time, but 
the effects of marijuana on the brain, the effects of marijuana on, 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 on even the potency of the male, the effect of marijuana on the, the mind. It's a mind-altering drug. drug. Uh, I am saying this, and I'm going to predict this, that if we continue down this trend within the next decade or so, when you walk the street, and I walk the street, we will have to be vigilant because these people are hearing voices. There's no doubt in my mind that this is part of the demonic control in the end times, that they're opening their mind to demonic powers. We are headed to perilous times. Look how many ganja babies Jamaica has produced after the legalized uh, ganja. So I can't understand how any politician with any kind of a conscience about uh, what is best for the country and the welfare of the country, not just a minority. And that's the problem now, see? Because we're trying to accommodate everybody, we're trying to be tolerant to everybody, we must now allow any and everything to go. We're not looking at the welfare of the vast majority of the population. And we're going to pay a heavy price for this legalization of marijuana. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy or a suggested topic for a future episode of That's Truth? You can WhatsApp or text it to one 782 1454 WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, the phone number is 1-268-462-7420. We've had a lot of interaction thus far tonight. Thank you for those of you who have interacted with us, and we are looking forward to interaction throughout the rest of the program we have 20 minutes left in the program you can also send your question via email to crl that's truth at gmail.com that's all one word no spaces no apostrophe or if it's easier you can go to the crl facebook page click on the facebook live video you can take a look at what happens behind the scenes in the studio and you can comment your question or thought along the video feed and it'll get passed along to pastor murphy we've been discussing tolerance started out with what is tolerance why is it important that we discuss tolerance and wasn't Jesus tolerant? Pastor, what about others in the Bible? What about the Apostle Paul? He's a hero of the faith. Yeah. Wasn't he pretty tolerant? <laughs> One of the most intolerant characters you'll find in the Bible. But again, you'll find it when Paul is talking about accommodating the weaker brother. Mm-hmm. He's, he's call, appealing for tolerance. That is compassion. That is consideration. That's recognizing that the, young, the, 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 uh, the weaker brother is not as developed and mature as you are. So you don't engage in activities that could be offensive to him or would damage his faith. Uh, for example, he talked about the idea of meats. Uh, you know, the idea that the cheapest meat was the one offered to idols selling the marketplace, and I go and buy it and I use it. I didn't see anything wrong with that, but the other brother thinks because of his paganism associated with the meats offered to idols, he's offended. So Paul says, I wouldn't eat any meat while the world stands. So Paul is appeals for toleration when he talks about having the same mind, having the same spirit. He's calling for toleration. Let each consider themselves better than the other, uh, the other better than themselves. He's calling, but on the other hand, the Apostle Paul was never tolerant towards false teachers. He actually named them something that is abhorrent in our modern society. But you'll find that in First Timothy chapter one, verse twenty, he mentions Hymenius and Alexander, and uh, he said that they had actually abandoned a good conscience and faith and made shipwreck of themselves. 
in Second uh, Timothy chapter two seventeen, he calls of Hymenus and Philetus. He said that uh, they had undermined the truth of others by denying the resurrection. He calls them out by name that these people are in error. And in Second Timothy chapter four verse seventeen, he says that Alexander had opposed his message and had done him great wrong. So talk about intolerance. Uh, Paul, and then you remember also in the Corinthian church, is in Corinthians chapter 5, you got a young man in the church who's living with his stepmother committing incest. The church is tolerant, you know, thinking that somehow that they are... They were proud of it. Very proud. Yeah. And, and Paul said, I am, look, I am there in spirit, and I'm telling you, cast a young man out. Get rid of him, right? And then when the young man repented, in chapter uh, Corinthians chapter, Paul said, now listen... Not he's repentant, receive him back into the congregation. But Paul would not tolerate sin within the congregation. So when you talk about the Apostle Paul, when it comes to deal with false teachers or false doctrine or false brethren or people in error, the Apostle Paul demanded that they be disciplined and that the church would not tolerate uh, this kind of behavior within the church. The, today in the church, we don't have people uh, who want discipline? Uh, we must we must not tell anybody that they're wrong. We must try to, after all, be more concerned about numbers. We're not concerned about tithing. We're not concerned about how much income that comes into the church. We're not concerned about the purity of the church, and and above all, we want peace at all price. But we must not sacrifice truth uh, for to, to achieve peace, and we must not sacrifice purity to achieve peace. So the Apostle Paul uh, was clearly uh, not... Also think about the Apostle John, the Apostle of love. (laughs) John says uh, in in John, if any come into your house and bring out this doctrine, what to do? Don't even receive them into your house. And he said, brethren, believe not every spirit, but try every spirit. Don't be tolerant to every spirit that comes and deliver. And then also in John chapter 3, he calls out another man by name. Remember Diostrophes, who loved the preeminence? Again, clearly, this disciple of love is intolerant towards this kind of aberrant behavior within the church. So, besides Christ and besides the Apostle Paul, you've got even um, John. We can talk about Peter as well, who warns us in Second Peter about false teachers who are coming, and he condemns them. We can look at Jude, uh, who said, I, I, I wrote to you concerning the common gospel, but you know I deviated because we must contend for the faith. And then he lists those who had gone away from the faith and had deviant doctrinal beliefs. So do you feel that we, in today's day and age, the year 2019, that we should be, as part of preaching or teaching, that we should be naming false teachers? Or is that going too far? Should we just teach truth very strongly and let those in the congregation connect the dots as to who the false teachers are? Look, the Bible is a biblical model for the church. It's not the cultural standards. The culture says you shouldn't name people that are, you know, you can... As far as I'm concerned, if a a false teacher teaching false doctrine, he ought to be called out. Let people know he's a false teacher. He's a false... uh, He's teaching false doctrine. I have no qualms about naming somebody who's teaching a false doctrine or false teaching. And my, my basis for that is that my model and my pattern is not culture, but scripture. Paul did it, uh, and if Paul, um, I remember Paul wrote on the inspiration. So if Paul wrote it, 
it means it was sanctioned by God under inspiration. So I think it's right and proper that we call out people. And by the way, the greatest disservice we can do to anybody is to allow them to be misled for fear that we would be considered doing something inappropriate because we've labeled somebody uh, who's teaching false doctrine. Would we rather that that person continues teaching that false doctrine, that false teaching, and be deceiving the multitudes, or should we not speak out uh, once truth is involved? Uh, and I think that uh, that's the biblical way of dealing with it. Who was it that uh, in the New Testament, I think a couple took a, a gentleman who was teaching false doctrine uh, under their wing? Oh, that was Ananias, uh, sorry, that was Ananias and Sapphira. Who took um, Apollos? Yes, Apollos. Because yeah. Apollos was a man mighty in Scripture, but again, he did not come to the light of New Testament truth, and they took him under their wings and made certain things clear that he was not certain about in respect to the Old Testament. Truth. So, is it safe to say that at, at some point they were? not politically correct and they were intolerant by calling him out or they maybe didn't do it publicly but by uh, oh, I'm sorry I'm, I'm not it's not an essence of they were the it's ones Aquila, that, and yeah, Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla Aquila and Priscilla I'm sorry about that sorry uh-huh. said but no. is it is it safe to assume that they were not politically correct in the sense that they were willing to uh, say hey you're not right this is the truth no it, 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 it all has to do with the individual if a person is teachable and the person is teaching something that's contrary to scripture and maybe the, you know a lot has to do with our background uh, if I'm coming out of a Pentecostal background Lutheran background or Presbyterian background whatever background I'm coming out of I'm coming out with certain doctrinal teachings that I was taught from early so it, it has to do with my willingness to be instructed and to be taught when something is contrary to the Word. If I can prove from the Word that what uh, the person is teaching or what I'm teaching is contrary to Scripture, I should be humble enough to be willing to take instruction from a person who's really trying to help me. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a person who is actually teaching falsehood, who is very arrogant in teaching this falsehood, and who's completely unwilling to see the biblical point of view in respect to that false teaching. I'm talking about that, but if a person is teaching something that, only, that you know or I know, and you think it would be helpful to say, listen, you ought to consider this, this biblical teaching, and they're willing to give consideration to it, uh, I don't think it would be appropriate then to, uh, to broadcast uh, the, their names and respect. But I'm talking about people who are deliberately teaching false teaching and not intended to, to change or listen or to counsel. Or when shown from Scripture that something is false, continues to perpetuate it. I think then when that happens, you have a legitimate right to call them out. Pastor, we have a caller from Anguilla. Thank you for calling, and go ahead quickly, please. Um, good night. Um, Pastor. Yes, sir. Um, if you knew of a restaurant in um, Antigua that was selling um, outdated, you know, dangerous food, food, food that wasn't good, um, would it? Would you go on, you, you know, on the pulpit and let's say warn your people because some maybe were eating there. Just talk about some restaurants are eating. Um, I mean, uh, are using dangerous products. Uh, would you? Wouldn't it be right for you to name the restaurant? 
Hi, no, sir, you can bring yourself to legal jeopardy there because I don't know the restaurant. I don't know how true because it's one thing to say something, but to verify it. No, what I mean, you know, this is what I mean, you know. Well, if it was my people, I would certainly warn my people, no question about right. that. I, I would so, not mention it publicly, for example, because there may be other people who are visiting. But I would say to the church, look, I just need to meet with you, and I need to share something with you that I'm greatly concerned about. And if it was uh, Kentucky or it was any one of those, I would really share with my church, listen, I, I, I've learned this. I believe this to be true. I think the source is reliable. I would not recommend that you uh, buy food from there or whatever it is. I, I have no problem about that. Look, there's some places here in, um, <laughs> I don't want to see, I'm on the air now, right? Well, um, Go ahead. I'm only saying this, using this as an, an, an example. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, the folks who say you're not supposed to name names. Well, well Paul named names, as I pointed out. Paul named names. I don't know. Right. Look, we want to be loved by everybody, and I don't. Th we're taking our standard and our norms from the culture, and the culture right. that we're living in is a tolerant, compromising culture that doesn't believe in anything that's exclusive and doesn't believe in truth any longer, and believe that we should be um, accommodating uh, to every form of lifestyle, every form of belief, and. We are salt, brother. We are light. Right. We're the very opposite of what the world is like. So we've got to be different. And even if we get the flack and we get the backlash, enjoy the backlash. Jesus said, Look, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they love right. me, they're going to love you. Right? And we've got to expect that. But the problem with the church today is that we're so compromised and we're so cons uh, um, want to be considered to be popular and to be with it and to be hick and all this kind of stuff that uh, we have surrendered and surrendered and compromised and compromised until now the salt has lost its savor, church has lost its testimony, and uh, we no longer have a voice, a moral voice any longer. And that's the tragedy of our times. The church should be speaking out clearly, and the people should be listening, but they're not listening because the church is just like the world. Yeah, well, well you know, I, I had a magazine was talking about, from a, from a Christian um, website, um, news website, Walnut Daily. Uh-huh. And um, in, in their magazine, this magazine whistleblower, they're talking about political correctness. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And they were tracing the roots of it. And they showed that it went back to, um, to communism, to Mo Zedong okay. in um, China. Uh -huh. And they were showing how it's really used to manipulate people. Yeah. You, you know, to change your mind. Yeah. There's some real devilish philosophies out there. But the way that they are, be, you know, we are being manipulated. I mean, it's frightening. Yeah, it is. It is. I just look. I just think that we need some courageous Christians that will just take the Bible for what it is, believe what the Bible teaches, take a stand on the matter, and take. If, if, if imprisonment comes, take imprisonment. If, yeah, if something right. comes, we we adjust. Look, we want change. We really want change, but we're not willing to pay the price pay for the change. Price. And I don't know how we're going to change society uh, by just talking unless we're willing to pay the price. Yeah, that's and uh, we're just not willing to make the sacrifice. We want everything to go our way, and we just don't want to pay the sacrifice. But look, if the people that came before us, uh, those that really, really laid down their lives for the gospel and given themselves to the gospel, uh, we need another generation like that. But we, we don't, we can't, I don't know, something has gone wrong with us. We just yeah, it is scary because I have three young children in their 20s. Uh -huh. And when, we, when I look at it, the way the world and the Caribbean is going, <laughs> it's scary. Yeah, I, you know, look, can you imagine what the world would look like in the next two decades? 
No, I I mean, that's frightening. The thought is frightening. Honestly, it's really, really frightening. But again, I really think that if the Lord would be merciful to us and give us a reprieve, I think if we were to have a real genuine revival, I think it would have a transformative effect on society. It happened during the Wesley period of time when the French Revolution was going on and England was saved from revolution because of the preaching of the Wesleys. It happened in America under Whitfield and and Jonathan Edwards. And uh, brother, all I can say, um, we all have the same concern of the glory of God and the winning of people to, to Christ. And we need revival, but it will not come until we are broken and we repent and we seek the Lord's face in prayer and, and fasting. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. I appreciate that. God bless you. Thank you for the call, and glad to hear you listening from the island of Anguilla. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.54. Pastor, we have about five minutes left in the program, and I don't think we're going to make it all the way through this topic tonight. We'll have to pick it up next week. But a quick question for you. Can a Christian be a born-again Christian and still be part of that 57% of evangelical Christians that say, yes, there are other ways to get to heaven? It's difficult for me to conceive that a person can really, truly believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and still entertain the idea that there are other options to heaven. Something is wrong there. I, I, it cannot. The, 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 there is a. Um, it's a paradox that is inexplicable, that I can believe in the exclusive, exclusivity of Christ in terms of redemption, and yet countenance the idea that there may be other ways to heaven. I I don't know how, I could take a person that into my church as a member, uh, to have that kind of a, deviant view. But aren't you being intolerant by saying that? Well, I don't mind being intolerant. Uh, I am I'm tolerant towards what the Bible says. I'm tolerant. I'm intolerant towards what the Bible says. I'm being intolerant too. So I am intolerant towards false doctrine. Totally intolerant towards. I'm intolerant towards sin. I'm, I'm tolerant towards people ensuring compassion to people. But uh, I have no problem with being intolerant, and I am not here to um, to be tolerant in every detail and in every relationship. Uh, so I, I don't have a problem with being intolerant when, it, when, when there's a biblical standard for it. You're listening to That's Truth. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM. You can also listen to us anywhere around the globe at www.radiolighthouse.org. Pastor Murphy, is it ever okay to tolerate sin? Well, if you take the biblical standard um, where Paul says um, seek righteousness and uh, uh, forsake sin, uh, where Jesus Christ told the lady, uh, go down and sin no more, where the Apostle Paul gives instruction to the Corinthian church to cast out the young man who was practicing incest with his stepmother, um, there's no reason for a person to uh, no basis for a church to tolerate sin. But let me let me draw one 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 disclaimer here. As a pastor, I've had situations where um, people have been engaged engaged in activities that are false. A husband and wife 
um, where there's some kind of immorality going on. Um, you've got to be very, very careful with that kind if there's a third party. Sometimes it's not something you can just bring to the church. If a person came to me, a couple came to me and said they're having those kind of uh, uh, mortal problems and it's being dealt with with myself privately, that's not something for me to bring to the church. However, I always tell them that once it becomes public, it has to come to the church. So there are times when families and, and husband and wife may be going through some moral issues and you're counseling them privately to try to bring the marriage back together. You're trying to deal with the matter. Uh, and I don't think it is right and proper for that to be exposed because they've come to you privately. If you did that as a pastor, your capacity to counsel in the future is completely destroyed and neutralized. Nobody will come to you and trust you. So that must not be perceived as tolerating sin. In other words, as long as they're trying to deal with the issue, you're not continuously practicing whatever it is. Suppose it's adultery or fornication, and uh, they recognize the problem, they're dealing with the problem, trying to get a handle on it. That's something different than if that person is recklessly going on, committing the act again and again. So it's a very difficult question. We must not tolerate public sin. But there are times when somebody may come to your past, I'm struggling with marijuana, I'm struggling with smoking, I'm trying to deal with it, can you help me? And you're trying to deal with that person in private. While you're not agreeing with him, not tolerating him, at the same time you're working towards him, so that must, be, must not be viewed as being tolerant towards sin. In 20 seconds, is it okay to tolerate sin if I have someone who is living in my household who is practicing sin within that household, or is that something you need to cover next week let me cover that next week (laughs) all right thank you for joining us for tonight's episode of that's truth we've been discussing tolerance we will pick this up next week and continue to discuss tolerance and we'll start out with the question that i was asking pastor murphy there have a great night keep your radio dial tuned to the caribbean radio lighthouse stay in god's word and we'll see you next time Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.